Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we are continuing on through the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 10 and this morning we're going to look at verses 15 through 25. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your Bibles open. Reading along there with me, we are on page 1007. If you're using the church Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 15. We're going to read down to verse 25 this morning. And before we do, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask his blessing in the preaching of his word. Father, we come to you poor and needy, spiritually naked, wanting to be clothed with the righteousness of our Lord Jesus, wanting to have our eyes open to see him, having every obstacle removed that would keep us from seeing him. We come, many of us, weary and tired. We come, uh, some of us, hungry and longing to be fed with the bread from heaven. And so we pray, Father, that you would feed your people, that you would clothe your people, that you would open the eyes of your people, that you would move in this place. We ask that the scriptures would be heard and felt in a way that they have not been heard and felt. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. We pray that he would make us to know not just the word, but the power. We pray that you would give us grace to receive your word with meekness, to lay it up in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. Oh God, we pray that we would know and see the Lord Jesus, and that we would be able to feed on him by faith this morning, and that we would be able to live out of what we have in him, and that we would experience and enjoy all of the blessings that we have in him. We pray these things in his name, for his name's sake. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. As you see the day drawing near, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one thing emerges as you start to read through some of the great biographies of the church, as you start to read through some of the the great um, autobiographies that you find in the annals of church history. And one of those things that emerges is this, this quest for assurance. There's a quest for assurance. You find it not just in weaker saints, not just in weaker believers and those who have a feeble faith or a childlike faith. You find it in some of the greatest ministers in the history of the church. Um, If you were to read through John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, 
your heart, if you're a true believer, your heart would, would start to um, sympathize with his heart over his experiences. At times, it would even grow frustrated at the experiences that Bunyan had. Bunyan had sort of a, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not experience through much of his Christian life. And yet, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest preachers, gave us one of the books, greatest books in the history of Christianity. Another figure uh, is David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians in New England. Jonathan Edwards wrote his biography. He he ended up living in the Edwards house and dying in the Edwards house, almost marrying Jonathan Edwards' daughter. And what you find in the biography and in the letters of David Brainerd is that he had a deep struggle and longing for assurance. John Newton, another great figure in church history, the great John Newton, who was a slave trader, who was then converted, who wrote Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me would often talk about preaching and how when he was preaching, he would feel his soul was like a house with the windows shut and darkened and no light was coming in, even as he preached the light of the gospel. And it's interesting to me that as you go through the biographies and the autobiographies of all of these great eminent preachers and all of these great saints in church history, so many of them had this common experience of a quest for assurance. I think that's interesting because the writer of Hebrews has gone to great lengths in this book to stir us up to understand what we have in Jesus. And you might ask the question, didn't we hear this last week? And didn't we hear this the week before? And didn't, didn't the pastor preach about Jesus and the gospel the week before that? Why, why do we have to hear so often about Jesus Christ and the blood of sprinkling and what we have in Jesus Why do we need to hear that? Well, the writer tells us here in chapter 10, he tells us that we have a new and living way. Therefore, let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith. The problem that the Hebrews had, the Hebrew Christians here, is that they were not fully convinced of what they had in Jesus. They had heard the apostles preach. They had heard the greatest ministers in the first century that Jesus Christ had set apart, men who had been with Jesus. They had heard them from them preaching the gospel to them, and yet they were ready to go back to Judaism and ritualistic worship, and they were moving away. And at the end of the day, the writer of Hebrews is saying the deep problem is you do not know what you have in Jesus. You have not yet come to experience and enjoy to the full what you have in Jesus, and what you need more than anything is a true heart drawing near in full assurance of faith. He's going to do three things here. In verses 15 to 25, first he's going to give us um, the assurance of these new covenant privileges as he points out that prophecy from Jeremiah of the new covenant. And then he's going to give us the grounds of new covenant privileges. And then finally, he's going to tell us about the practice and enjoyment of these new covenant privileges. Notice there in verse 15, the writer is continuing on with this idea that Jesus is a better sacrifice, that he ended animal sacrifice, that he ended temple worship, that he ended the old covenant priesthood, that everything has been realized and embodied in Jesus, that Jesus is far more sufficient than you could ever realize in what he has done. Why would you depart from him? And now the writer says, notice in verse 15, he says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of the new covenant. This is the covenant, God says, that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, why, why does the writer add this after giving us the theology of what Jesus has done? He's brought us into the most holy place. He's explained what happened at the cross. He's explained that Jesus's blood takes away the guilt of our sin, that it satisfies God's wrath, that it makes us complete and whole and positionally perfect in him. He's explained all of that. Now he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I think that the writer of Hebrews is anticipating their objection and them saying, I don't know, this could just be your opinion. Lots of people have opinions. Everybody has opinions. The world is a world of opinions. Why is your opinion about Jesus being a better sacrifice better than the Jews' opinion? about the animal sacrifices in the temple worship. That's just your opinion. And the writer essentially says, oh, no, no. It is the opinion of the blessed third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And it's not just his opinion writing it right here in Hebrews chapter 10 as I give it to you. It is his opinion so many hundreds years ago through the prophet Jeremiah. And what the writer's doing is saying the Holy Spirit inspired every word of the Bible and the Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. He's told us that at the beginning of the book. The first words of this book are God has spoken. The very first words of this book are God has spoken. And I'm going to tell you this as frankly as I can this morning. If the Holy Spirit has not spoken, and if God has not spoken, I am wasting my time. You are wasting my time. I have nothing to gain by sitting up here and preaching from a book that men wrote, if only men wrote it. And the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, look, if you want to be assured of these things, know that the scriptures, all of the scriptures, Jeremiah, Hebrews, all of it, is the very word of the blessed Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. And notice what he says, and he he ascribes deity. Notice he ascribes personality to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not just some force that, that God works to do things. He's a person. He's God. He's as much God as God the Father is God. And he's as much God as Jesus is God. And notice what he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness. He bears witness. Now, I've noted this in the past. There's something actually really remarkable about this. He's about to quote some verses out of Jeremiah that were written in Israel's captivity in Babylon so long before this book was written. But he's going to give it a present tense. He's going to say the Holy Spirit presently bears witness. And that means anytime any part of the scripture is read, no matter when it was written, it is the Holy Spirit speaking now, presently, because he is living, his word is living, it is living and active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and mirrors, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that means when the writer of Hebrews goes back to Jeremiah, he is saying this is as much a word for you today as it was for them when they first got it. And when they first got it, that word was this. There's a day coming. The Lord was saying to Israel in the Old Covenant, there's a day coming. And that coming day is going to bring the end of all sacrifice. I'm going to forgive your sins. There's a day coming when what the animals that you've 
sacrificed for all these thousands of years will no longer be sacrificed and will no longer need to be sacrificed. There's a day coming when I will forgive your sins and your lawless deeds. And that means the end of sacrifice in the new covenant, in the coming of Jesus. That means God says to Israel, I am going to end sacrifice. I am going to forgive your sins. I'm going to obliterate the reminder of them judicially before me and take it out of the way. Your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That doesn't mean God forgets them. It doesn't mean he somehow forgets to take note of them. He purposefully puts them away through the sacrifice of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so important to know our Old Testament. Not two religions, one religion, one book. The Holy Spirit predicted that one day Christ would be the final sacrifice. And notice this. Notice what he says about the privileges of the new covenant. First, he says in verse 16, I will put my laws on their mind, on their hearts, and write them on their minds. Now, this is often difficult in theology. Theology is not easy. One of the big and, and maybe the, the most difficult thing is how the Old and the New Testament work together. One of the things that's striking is when Israel came to the mountain, God gave them the law. He gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. They were written on stones. In the New Covenant, constantly, the Apostle Paul is saying, God writes those laws on our hearts. He makes us love them. When I was unregenerate, I hated, you shall not commit adultery. I hated, you shall not bear false witness. I hated, you shall have no other gods before me. Now as a Christian, while I may still disobey those at times, I love those commands. The Holy Spirit has written them on my heart. He's sanctifying me. He's, he's, those are the spheres in which I'm being sanctified. What does it look like to be redeemed and be sanctified? It means God is more and more and more conforming me to obedience, just like Christ was obedient, and that I now love those laws. And they're not a condemnation to me. I'm not under their condemnatory power. They don't bring judgment on me. Because, notice what he says in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There is nothing, there's nothing in Christianity more than that. If I can say that this morning, the law of God written on your heart, your sins forgiven, you are a new person, you are free from condemnation, you have all the privileges of children of God. You are in a right standing before God. You have a, a guiltless standing before God because Christ took that guilt at the cross. A guiltless standing before the holy God. You know, I think that the reason Bunyan and Brainerd and Newton struggled with assurance the way they did is because they so acknowledged the holiness, the righteousness, and the just judgment of God. And yet, the assurance doesn't come from merely acknowledging that, but acknowledging that all of the justice of God has been satisfied against your sins at the cross. And when your heart condemns you, when your heart condemns you as a believer, and when you're struggling with assurance, we come back first to the scriptures, don't we? And the Holy Spirit bears witness. And he says, look, back in Jeremiah, this is what God has promised. God has done it. God doesn't call you to, to shape up and do this to get in a right standing with him. God has said, I will put my law in their hearts. 
I will forgive their sins and their lawless deeds. How glorious is that, that the God against whom we have sinned says, I will forgive your sins. I will put my law in your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will love you and redeem you and keep you. I will make you my sons and my daughters. And the writer of Hebrews says that if you want assurance first, you realize that that assurance comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the scriptures in which the spirit is spoken. And that's why, again, as we wrestle, as we wrestle to grow in our knowledge of God, and as we enter into those wrestlings with assurance and sin and fighting against sin and and failing at times and confessing sin and, and crying out to God to draw near to us, we go back to the scriptures. And as God speaks to us in his spirit, our hearts are assured. Our hearts are warmed. Martin Luther wrote a really interesting little um, book, about a 34-page book for his barber. Luther has all these wonderful little stories, hanging out with a barber, making wine, talking to people about the Lord everywhere he goes. And he writes a little book for his barber on what it means to pray, a simple way to pray, it's called. And Luther opens that little booklet, and what he says in it is, he says... The best way for you to grow in drawing near to God is to read the scriptures like a child, is to go to the different parts of the Bible. He says, sometimes I read the law, sometimes I read the prophets, a lot of times I read the Psalms, sometimes I read the Gospels, sometimes I read the writings of Paul. This is what he says to his barber. And what he says is that the heart is then warmed and faith is created and nurtured in the soul. That's why, that's why receiving the testimony of the Spirit is so important to our understanding these things and knowing them. If all you do is come here on Sunday and hear me preach, it is not sufficient. I know this much, that if you do not read the Bible except on Sunday, there is no way you're drawing near to God throughout the week in intimacy and fellowship and enjoying those privileges. There's not. Because one of the chief ways that God does that is to remind us of of the testimony of the Holy Spirit to these things, producing and creating the faith that then enables us to cry out. Well, notice, secondly, that the writer goes on now, and he he gives us um, the grounds of assurance. What, What causes this assurance? We've just seen this for weeks, but notice what he does here. Notice in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Boldness, uh, the literal wording is freedom of speech. Since we have freedom of speech to God in prayer, to enter the holy places, that's heaven itself where God is, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now what he's saying is that ultimately what the scripture bears witness to is what Jesus has done And knowing the grounds of the assurance is what enables you to draw near. And so the scripture points to Jesus. The spirit points to Christ, reminds us of what he's done, as we've seen over these last five months in the book of Hebrews. And then that becomes the springboard to us going to the throne of grace boldly. Because when when we're convinced of the grounds of our assurance, because if we do, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, We're never going to get a solid foundation. The solid foundation is the work of Jesus. 
He's the rock. That's the bedstone. That's what holds everything up. That's how, that's how we can fly to the presence of God boldly. The God who told Israel, don't come near the mountain. We'll talk about that in a minute. The foundation is the finished work of Jesus. And notice what he says. It's really some of the most, I think, mysterious and wonderful words in the Bible. Notice this. He says, we have a new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the veil. That is his flesh. Now, in, in the temple, in the tabernacle, there was a veil. That veil separated God from the people. The people couldn't come in there. It was symbolic that our sins have separated us from God. And that veil kept God from the people. It was not good news. That veil was bad news. That veil was, do not pass into here or you will die. You cannot come into the presence of a holy God and live with your sins and your iniquities before him. And when Christ died on the cross, Matthew says, the earth quaked, the rocks were split, and the veil of the temple tore in two. And that was symbolizing that the way into the holy place was now made open. And the writer of Hebrews takes this to a much more profound place for us this morning. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the veil was not really the veil in the temple, the veil that was rent from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified, but that the veil was the flesh of Jesus, nailed to the cross, rent at the cross. Just like in the supper, the bread is broken, reminds us that the veil has been rent. Now, how does that work? What does that even mean? I think it helps when we consider just a little bit... um, what John Calvin said, Calvin says in his Institutes, uh, he says, Christ suffered his divinity to be concealed under a veil of flesh. So if you saw Jesus, he would look just like you and me. He had no form, no beauty. When we see him, we wouldn't desire him. People saw him. They say, who are you? We know you're Joseph's son. We know your brothers and sisters are here. You're just a man. And what the Bible says and what John Calvin very rightly says is that Jesus, the Son of God, suffered his divinity to be veiled under a veil of flesh. It was concealed under a veil of flesh. That's the point of the transfiguration. When Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up on the mountain, and for a moment, the veil is torn away. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become white and glistening. For a moment, the deity breaks through the humanity. At the cross, when the body of Jesus is nailed to the tree, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the veil was rent and that direct access to God was made through the deity of Jesus by the rending of the humanity of Jesus. And that in the ripping apart of the Son of God on the cross and the tearing apart of his flesh, access into God's presence has happened so that you can go now boldly, unashamed, that the way has been opened to all men so that Jesus can say, I am the way. The writer of Hebrews says to us, a new and a living way. Why is it living? Because he's alive. It's a living way because Christ is alive, because he's risen, because the one who who made the way into the divine presence, who is himself God through his rent body on the tree, makes the way for us now as he ever lives at the right hand of God, that that way is ever open. And so what Adam and Eve would have experienced in the garden when 
there were two cherubim with flaming swords saying, you cannot come back. There is not a way into the presence of God is taken away in the death of Jesus. The veil is torn and God says, come. And he doesn't just say, come. He says, so great is the grounds of what God has done to forgive your sins that he says, come boldly, come with freedom of speech. I was watching a show last night, um, as you often see on shows on television, it was a very wicked man in this drama who had come to an end of himself and he went into a, a cathedral to pray and he was, he was arguing with God and telling God how much he hated him. And as I thought about that, and I thought about what the book of Hebrews says, and that that's the exact opposite of what he's saying. What he's saying is the boldness that man used and the audacity that that man had to speak to the living God the way he did, you have to speak to him as a child to his father because of what Jesus has done, that you can go to him with all the boldness, all the holy boldness and freedom of speech and confidence and say, Lord, you have made way, I believe that you have made way, because your son, your son's flesh has been torn apart at the cross. And so when we go to God in prayer, we don't go because, well, I have a right to pray. We go because Christ has made us have a right to pray through his torn flesh. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Notice, thirdly, that he's going to talk about enjoying the practices and privileges. And I think this is where this really comes home to us this morning. Um, I love this, that in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the writers spend a very lopsided amount of time talking about what Christ has done and what we have, and then some time applying it. This is the first time we get application in this book. Notice that we get uh, three... Three, let us applications, beginning in verse 22. Since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then the second one, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then thirdly, let us consider how to stir up to love and good works. Now, what the writer is going to do is he's going to tell us that we have these privileges in the new covenant and they're greater than old covenant saints had. Something I don't think we fully appreciate that if you were a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, looking forward to the Messiah in the old covenant, you did not have the fullest extent of privileges that we have, which makes no sense why we don't enjoy them more, except that we cherish sin too much. Because if you really understood the extent and fullness of the privileges that you had as a believer, you would embrace those and exercise those and enjoy those and enter into those more fully. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is saying, look, you have the scripture, you have the testimony of Christ and the rent veil and his flesh torn open and a way made to the presence of God. And now he says, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Now, he doesn't say, let us draw near with a heart that never sins. That's important. What God wants is a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. When you go to him in prayer, he doesn't care about your words. Jesus made that very clear. Jesus said that the the Gentiles, they heap up words, you know, 
They pray in King James language pretentiously. I'm not saying everybody that does does that is doing that. I'm saying God does not hear you for your words. Jesus says that. God does not hear you because of what words you choose to speak. God hears you because of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we are called to to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That what God wants for us is to be a people exercising faith in coming to God, crying out to him. You know, William Still, a theologian that I really respect a lot, said over his 30 years of pastoral ministry, he had met so many people who had come to him and said, I really struggle with assurance. I really struggle. I used to feel God's presence, and now I don't anymore. He says that they would come and they would tell him that they made all kinds of penitential promises to God. Oh, God, if you would just return your presence, I'll do this and I'll do that. And still goes on to say, God is always near to his people, whether you feel it or not. And we don't feel it usually because we choose to sin instead of going to, to him. And that what God wants from us is not to make some penitential promise to God, but to say, Lord, I believe that you are near. I believe that what you have done for me has made access to you. My father, I will call on you as a child calls on his father. Still goes on to give this illustration I thought was really helpful. He said, in Scotland, I grew up and I was one of six children. And whenever my mother used to hear us arguing, she would go in the other room. And he said, now, now, In one sense, my mother's presence had left us. She wanted to get away from the arguing. But she had not gone out of the house. She wasn't far. She was there. She had drawn away because of their sinful arguing, but she was there, always there. And that's the way God is. God the Father is there for his people. He is always close at hand. The Lord is close and near to those who call on him. I want to read to you something I I found um, Old Southern Presbyterian John L. Gerardo. I'm going to read this and then just say two little things. The great God now regards us as children, adopted in his son and beloved for his sake. As children, therefore, are are entitled to enter into their father's presence to invade so to speak, his very privacy. I want you to think about that. As children are invited into their father's presence to invade, as it were, his very privacy and to come to him with filial confidence at all times with their petitions, so are we, my brethren, authorized to approach our heavenly father to hold personal communion with him and freely and fully to present our prayers and make known our wants. But that's... That's what you have if you're in Jesus. You have access to the God of the universe, not as the just judge, but as your heavenly father. And you can invade his privacy. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's he's saying through Jesus, you have access to knock on your father's door and say, Daddy, Daddy, I need this. I'm coming to you without fear that he's going to turn you away. In fact, the scriptures make very clear that if you do that, and your, your, your heart is true, and your, your desires are in accord with his desires, that he will always do what is good for you and what you need and what you ask in his son's name. 
If it's in accord with his will, that your father is always there. And so if you say, Father, forgive me, heal me of this sin, cleanse me of this sin, free me from this sin's power. Give me more love and joy and peace and long suffering and gentleness and kindness. Make me a new person. He'll do that. He's promised to do that. And you're to have assurance and confidence because of what the spirit has said in the scriptures and because of what Jesus has done. Let me just say two more things as we close. First is that there is also, there is a horizontal aspect of being in the new covenant. We've talked about the vertical. Here's the horizontal. Notice what the writer says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And it becomes a habit, doesn't it? It becomes a habit when we let it become a habit. He says, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The new covenant is a community of people for whom Jesus has died. And we're a people that need each other. Just like you need to hear the word preached on Sunday morning and you need to be in the scriptures through the week, you need one another. We need one another. We don't live in isolation. Um, Israel in the wilderness is a great example of this. I've often thought if Israel didn't stay together as they wandered through the wilderness, and if you wandered off, you would die in the wilderness. There was an utter, absolute dependence on being led by Moses and being gathered with the people, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, because entropy and decline is our default. Let me just say that again. If you go from this place, you just let this go. You don't encourage others. You're not encouraged by others. It's not going to be any change in your life. Be none. We need each other. It's why we want to be gathered together as much as we can. We need one another to exhort and encourage one another. Now, let me say this. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. That's not. That should not feel burdensome to you. If you think about the accountability you have to other believers, and if you think of, oh, I got to be at this and that and this and that, chances are good you're not looking at what the writer of Hebrews is saying as privileges and blessings, and that you're not understanding that what Christ has purchased for you is he has purchased all of this for you. Boldness into the Father's presence, place in the church of Jesus Christ, support and encouragement. Um, my hope for this church, as every pastor has hopes for their church, my hope for this church, my deepest longing, is that we would experience and enjoy and grow in our commitment to living out of the privileges that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a church exists for. It's the only thing a church exists for. Bring God glory. Enjoy what God's done for you in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we, every Lord's Day, take in so much. We pray that you would help us to remember, to meditate on, to lay hold of, and to keep the things that have been said. We pray that your Spirit would continue to bear witness to us through the Scriptures 
that you would give us a deeper commitment to pursuing an enjoyment and experience of the privileges we have. We thank you that we can invade your privacy. We thank you that you command us to come boldly with freedom of speech to your throne of grace. We pray that you would change us and, and cause us to grow and give us joy and give us a delight in what we have through the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.